This film contains coarse language and wartime discussions that many may find offensive and even racist. Unlikely to be historically accurate, this is a story about a 92-year-old with a photographic but fading memory looking back on his life. If you're listening to the audio version of this podcast, you might want to hit stop now and watch the video instead. It all becomes apparent why. Bernie, tell us how you went from being a seaman to being a fighter pilot in the Royal Australian Navy. Casey Hydeson was his name. And he was, we were on the cruise of Australia. And he was selected, his name came up to go on number four course. And I was on the Australia. But I'd again, I'd missed out on a placement because they only took 10 for each course. Well, he got himself, because he was to go on them, there was a charge in the Navy for, what was a skulking? If you were caught just loafing on domestics. And when he went up, he was caught like that. And when he went before the commander to know why he was he'd left his place of work and was loafing around the best decks, he, he said, oh, well, I'm no longer interested in being just a sailor, I'm going to be a pilot. And the commander said, no, you're not. If you're, that's your attitude and you're off, off the course which broke his heart and I know Well, I got that place by a fluke. And I got the, I was, I had a good day, but it kept me, my sort of keenness up to, had out of the, I'd been drafted then from the Warrabugga to the, cruiser, the Australia, and we'd spent a couple of months exploring the Barrier Reef because King George VI, the current Queen's father, they were to do a royal tour of the Commonwealth and due to come to Australia in Forty-eight, I think it was, and it was the Australia that was decked out to take them around. And he'd expressed a wish to find a nice little island where he could sit all his own and relax and, and fresh, clear water and all this. And we spent ages up the reef. looking for this nice little island. And <laughs> there were islands who claimed they were. It's always been kept secret which island was found for him. I can remember. It went on for months, that. And I think we must have been still up there when 
the names. They were taking ten at a time to train as pilots, and to be sick now. Only two were to go from the fleet, and some of the ones that. Oh, well, I was still one of the original ones that went in. And names went in, and Casey got scrubbed out. And we were, no, we were back in Sydney this night. And the Air Force would want to know who were the ten who was coming from the fleet to be trained. And I had another job on a ship. It was like a path deck sentry, which is four hours on, four hours off. A job that is always bad, day and night, sea or harbour. To, to be charged, on guard over all the keyboards and pistol racks and things like that. And I'd done it, you're only supposed to do it for three months. It was a job that most people didn't like, but I took to that. And I did it for about a year. Got myself a very good name and dependability and all that sort of stuff. And I, this very night about, I was doing the middle watch from 12 till four o'clock in the morning. And the a signal came through from shorter to the ship asking who was being sent to replace Able Seaman Heidson who'd David been withdrawn. And talk about being the right bloke in the right place. And the captain's secretary was wakened and asked to deal with this. And he, he said, oh, Brendan, have you seen the, was the captain in his cabin? He said, I was able to say, no, sir, he's, no, he's, he hasn't come back from shore yet. And he, he, he was in a bit of a tizzy. He said, oh, God, oh, God. this signal has to be answered and that. And it was the question was who was to replace Heidson. And he said to me, Brennan, you're in for this. Air crew training, aren't you? I said, yes, sir, I was one of the original ones and then others and blah, 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 blah. Because I was back in Japan and they didn't get me down and blah, blah, blah. And he said, you still want to go? I said, of course I do, sir. He said, well, you're not in my division, but I know you've always been very dependable on that. We put your name in. And that's how I became what I became. I, as a boy, had always wanted to fly. And in 1948, when the Australian Navy bought an aircraft carrier, bought it off the English then, because we were part of the 
One of the problems there too was the fact that the Americans, they've always, they decide their battles like the battles of Gettysburg. And where the cavalry came in by their overran the foot soldiers and then their cavalry came in and drove the other. So it went back and forth, back and forth. Whereas ours was still more or less the stalemate war of the Western Front. The Americans, they did more damage to their own side because they'll all sit in the bottom of their pillboxes till you go past. And they very bravely come up out of there. Foxholes, I mean. And you're likely to get shot in the back by the people who you made your support. We found bandits that... Um, the enemy got to know about this. And then lead the Americans on and, and all run for their lives. And the American back positions would join in the chase. And the enemy had side people to come in around and occupy the very trenches and all that that the Yanks had just left. And then they had nowhere to come back to. Do you understand what I'm getting at? And they killed more of their own bloody soldiers. I was involved in an incident. Um, this is why the Americans always lost so many men. And they would, say, come off their landing ship, with their tanks and everything. And naturally there'd be a new influence in that area. And the enemy would flee in front of them. And the Americans once they get going, they won't stop. They kept going right up to the But they don't stop to take prisoners. And all these people that now should be taken prisoner regroup. And when the Americans come back again, thinking now oh, they'll just drive home, they're quite surprised when they come up against a, a group of enemy soldiers. They're the ones that they should have taken prisoner on the way up. But they don't stop to take prisoners. And this was the old cavalry of the Indians. They'd charge through the Indians. They'd scatter. They didn't stop to, like, consolidate. They hit the brick wall and come back and they're amazed. But there's a line of armed Indians. We once, I tried to call them off. We designed this big push forward. After the, I think it was the River Inchon battles and that, that, where the English held the positions and the Americans sort of chased the enemy around them. And, and then the the American Air Force, anyway, was to bomb what had been established enemy positions. And 
It was all to happen at, would you say, 12 o'clock on this day. And the enemy just melted away and the army went through and occupied the enemy positions. Well, we who were low flyers and all that saw it happen. And then over the air, we could hear the orders being given to the big thing. It was when they first got the big B-29 bombers out there. And they were to bomb these positions that are now occupied by their own troops. But there was no way you could call them off because there'd been an incident before where some good English-speaking uh, North Korean was taken over the control and was giving these enemy bombers, the Americans, orders. And so they weren't going to be fooled by that again. They'd just ignore it. But the result that they wiped out two divisions of their own troops. We tried to call them off as hopeless. We were, their excuse afterwards was, how did they know we weren't enemy? Tried to call them off bombing the enemy positions. And I called up, I said, enemy, you know, American bomber forces, hold your bombs, don't release. The positions have been taken. There are, in other words, jokes. When it was all supposed to start at midday, they took it on themselves to start an hour earlier. They had to be trapped them and got them killed by their own bombs. And we used to say, how could they be so bloody stupid? But you can't undo months of planning, as it were. We were using our fireflies, which were built mainly for anti-submarine work. But they were the nearest things we, as the Australian carrier arm, had to. Um, we carried 500-pound bombs and rockets and things, and uh, I was flying in a formation of of six. And uh, we went and uh, hit a, an entrenched position. And some of the guys would hang off. And, because there was always anti-aircraft traps and that sort of thing. And uh, I, like a ninny, used to go a bit low, that sort of thing. And anyway, I got hit this day and... Uh, and then... So you never knew whether the underneath of your aircraft had been hit suddenly if an oil line had been... and there'd be bullets had got in... hit an engine part, you'd suddenly run out of oil. And we thought, oh, gee, you know, I... Didn't have a lot of time to work out what had happened to you. But immediately you lose edge, you just start losing height. 
It's always a matter of whether you could get back to your ship. The carrier comes in again to and your aim then is to get as close to the carrier as you can and come down in the, if you can't land on, to come down in the water near it and be picked up by the escorting destroyer. As far as I can remember, I knew I still had about 20 mile of enemy-occupied territory to uh, so you always look for a horse landing field. And there was no, no, no way of knowing then what enemy positions were, well, what was on the ground. And, uh, I had my map, but also knew that what I thought was a big lake was there if I could come down the middle of the lake it gave you a chance to if you well you had more chance to crash landing on the land or coming down the parachutes and pricks would shoot you on the parachutes as you came down I managed to get down and then to find there was a platoon of enemy soldiers waiting there, been hiding in the bushes and that. And then when my mates, they gave me cover for a while, they had to get back to the carrier and I was on bones. You get awful. And I managed to come down in the middle of what was a shallow lake. So the plane didn't sink, so I'm sitting there. I was trapped in the plane. I couldn't get out. And the North Koreans then had to shoot all Allied aircrew. So they couldn't get rescued and come back again tomorrow to get them, sort of thing. But anyway, uh, I thought I'd had it. But hanging in my cockpit was uh, my little bear, my bear that had been given to me for my third birthday. But I was with then, it led to the Royal Navy. I was flying off HMS Glory, which was the first carrier to go to Korea. And uh, anyway, this young, well, I'm there, trapped in aircraft, freezing water, freezing cold it was. And this young officer, North Korean officer, waded out, climbed up onto the wing, stuck his pistol in me, and I thought, I remember saying a quick prayer. And they said, ah, teddy bear. Grabbed the bear, pushed right up, said, you stay and fire this bloody pistol. <laughs> so that all these troops back on the bank, so 
thought he'd shot me. He waded back, and off they went. Later on that, when it got dark, I, I managed to get out. Uh, my boot was trapped under the front of the pedals, and I had to get that off. Swam and waded across the lake and got rescued the next morning by an American helicopter. In actual fact, it's an incident that the a movie called The Bridge to Toko Re is based on. Bishner, who wrote those tales of South Pacific, he was in the area, Toya, and he knew that something had happened, and he wrote the story, The Bridge to Toko Re. But when I went, got the X-ray rescue strike pilot took me back to, they had helicopters flying off pontoons of the moored offshore. And uh, when I told them, you got to be debriefed, I told them the story. The, uh, both the English intelligence and the American intelligence, as they call it, First of all, well, I couldn't understand why I hadn't been shot, you see. But a lot of North, young North Korean people had gone to universities in America. The Americans also had plants uh, in North. And I never did find out whether he was the guy who didn't shoot me and be teddy bear uh, because anyway it was put on 50 years secrecy this the top but uh, I was going to talk about it all this sort of stuff because I was on the English carrier you see their intelligence officer but because uh, then I was rescued by the American helicopter Mickey really paid the part and as I listened intently on the edge of my seat, I then understood why the walls of Bernie's tiny 6x10 home had over 2,000 teddy bears on the shelves from floor to ceiling. Should you about the fellow who... He was a rep and he used to come round this area and stay in this little country pub. And he went to the bar at night and he was sitting there this night drinking. And he said, There's not many people here, are there? To the bar and the barman said, No, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, we don't get many. But on Friday there's a few more around and that. They had a bird in the cage, and he said, what's that bird? He said, oh, it's a cockatoo. Well, anyway, next time he came, he said the same thing. About the third time, he, the barber was getting a bit fed up with him. And he, and he said, look, I've told you before, we don't get many here on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday or Thursday. Few more on a Friday and Saturday, and that's a cockatoo up there in the cage. 
And the bloke quick as a flash said, well, if you got rid of that cockatoo and got a cockatoo around the place, you might get it more in here on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Which I suppose stands some reasons. You can watch the videos or listen to the next two episodes of the Candid Memoirs of Seaman Burney, as they've already been released on Apple, Podbean, Podcast Addict, as well as at our website, 100actsofkindness.org forward slash Burney. They've also been released on Google, Spotify and Stitcher. However, at the time of publishing, these three don't support video, only the audio podcasts. The only way I can measure whether to release additional episodes is through the number of subscribers, so please do subscribe. I still only have one subscriber, and that's still my mum. If we ever get more than 10,000 subscribers, then I'll create more episodes. And I have over a year's worth of Bernie's memories to share with you. In the months that followed, I actually went out searching for some of Bernie's old friends, wondering if they were still alive including the seaman with a legendary 12-inch humongous appendage that became a thing to fear in the brothels of Kure Hill, Japan in 1946. I would love to tell you these stories. You can discuss this episode on Facebook by searching for at Bernie's Podcast. To read some of the backstories related to this podcast, you can like our Facebook page by searching for at 100 Acts of Kindness Films.